Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on February 6th at 9.30pm GMT. So if there's anything that's happened since then, we obviously couldn't cover it in today's episode. Uh, as always, if you want to find out anything about us here at Turk, follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and check out our website, T-E-R-C or U-E-L.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C. So on with today's podcast, it's my great pleasure and honor to welcome back. Uh, well, I say welcome back because this is our second attempt at, at uh, doing this interview, but to welcome onto the pod, Professor Richard Jackson, a professor of peace studies and director of the National Center for Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Otago in New Zealand. He is known as one of the founding scholars of the field of critical terrorism studies and has published a number of books, articles and chapters on the critical study of terrorism. He is the founding editor and current editor-in-chief of the journal Critical Studies on Terrorism, and his latest book is the Routledge Handbook of Critical Studies, which was published in 2016. His current research focuses on non-violent responses to terrorism. Richard, thank you so much for being on today's pod, and especially seeing as we've done this whole episode before, and uh, the sound quality just wasn't great the last time, but I'm sure we'll have an even better episode tonight. Well, it's my pleasure to talk to you. So, as with all of the guests, how did you get first involved in this uh, field of research, in this area of research? Well, I came to this um, uh, particular topic through conflict resolution. I, I did my PhD um, in international negotiation and mediation with the late Professor uh, Jacob Berkovich, who was a, a world-renowned uh, scholar of international mediation. And uh, I was really interested in how we resolve violent conflict, but the more I was in that sort of area, the more I realized actually we didn't fully understand what causes international conflict, uh, particularly violent conflict. And so we needed to understand a little bit more um, about how people got involved in political violence um, and what caused conflicts to become politically violent. Um, and it was right at that moment that I was thinking about how do we understand the causes of, you know, civil wars and, and organized political violence that 9-11 happened um, and that I read, um, you know, a number of key books. Um, and I realized that, you know, uh, this was a particular type of political violence that uh, we perhaps knew even less about. Um, and, and so I, I developed a real interest in, in terrorism um, as a particular kind of political violence. Uh, and then <clears throat> through a other series of other steps, um, you know, I adopted my, the particular approach that I've since come to be known for uh, in terms of the, the discourses of terrorism. And you were talking about how like uh, 9-11 happened, but you were engaging with uh, the literature from pre-9-11, obviously. And one of the pieces that you have put forward uh, as being influential on you, and you can see this uh, throughout your writings, is the piece from 1996 uh, by Joseba uh, Zaleka and uh, William Douglas, Terror and Taboo, The Follies, Fables and Faces of Terrorism. What was it about this piece that really uh, influenced the way you research and think about this area? 
Well, to be honest, it, it, it was one of the first full-length books that I read on terrorism. And I, I actually bought a copy of that book. Uh, uh, it was going secondhand in the university bookshop um, the day before 9-11 happened. Um, and I picked it up and I thought, oh, this looks really interesting. Uh, and then before I'd had a chance to read it, 9-11 happened. Uh, and then I thought, well, I, I better read this as quickly as I can. Um, and I just found it to be an incredibly convincing um, deconstruction, if you like, of the of the dominant terrorism discourse. And, um, I, you know, I found it totally convincing in its argument that the way in which we construct terrorism really in, in many ways affects how we respond to it. Um, and how we create it as a kind of object of knowledge um, and, and also an object of policy. Um, and that, you know, it's so tied up with, with culture and uh, with the way in which we've always, I suppose, constructed things that are dangerous, things that are threats to our society. Um, you know, and in that book, it talks a little bit about previous sort of moral panics and social scares around witchcraft, for example. Um, and then obviously, more recently, before 9-11, you know, around communism and, and, and the threat of, of Soviet agents and what have you. Um, and I just found that really um, convincing and, and incredibly interesting. And it seemed like no one was really thinking about that. No one was thinking about well, how do we respond to, to 9-11? How do we respond to terrorism? Um, and how does the way in which we construct it in the first place affect that response? So that's where I, that's where I sort of came in at it. And do you feel that the arguments being put forward there, are they still as relevant today? Are they less relevant? Or might they be even more relevant today than they were back in 1996? Well, I, th I think they're even more relevant today. I think we, you know, we can see more evidence of the way in which a particular cultural understanding, not and not just cultural understanding, but academic understanding and and political understanding of terrorism shapes the way we we respond to it. I mean, certainly we don't respond to terrorism uh, in a rational cost-benefit way. Uh, we don't respond to it in a um, scientific way. Um, we respond to it mostly uh, in a way that is defined by the kind of cultural constructions of terrorism uh, as a particular kind of evil, as a particular kind of existential threat, uh, terrorists as being, you know, these particularly kind of inhuman uh, creatures, not, not human beings with politics and um, personal lives and, and rationality and um, agency and so on. You know, the the whole response to terrorism has been so kind of destructive and so self-defeating and so irrational and so overblown because of the way in which we we've um, constructed it in our language and in our understandings. So I, I think his book is is more relevant than ever. And the thinking that was being put forward here, the arguments being put forward here, um. 
you're very well known uh, within the terrorism studies area for being one of the founders of critical terrorism studies. Was it pieces like Zuleika and Douglas uh, that was influencing the way critical terrorism studies was developed and what the focus was? Well, I think certainly for me it was. I can't I can't speak for the others. And I think, you know, there are a whole series of strands came together in, in critical terrorism studies. Um, and also a series of events, uh, the most important of which was the um, the 2004 Abu Ghraib scandal. I mean, when that, when that sort of hit, that was like a punch in the guts to me, because it seemed to be a perfect example of how the discourse of terrorism then gets materialized into real world practices. So you know, I had I had been reading around that time speeches of, of George W. Bush and, and others in the Bush administration who said that um, terrorists were the faceless enemies of freedom. And then I saw the Abu Ghraib scandals where they had all these hoods on their faces so you couldn't see their faces. And I had read about how <clears throat> these were savages um, and animals who attacked us on 9-11, and then I saw pictures of Lindy England dragging people around on a leash like a dog. And I thought, you know, this is this is the discourse of terrorism becoming real. Um, and, and so at that point, it, it became really sort of imperative that um, somebody at least uh, ought to stand up and, and kind of, you know, denounce the way in which we've dehumanized uh, people in the war on terror, uh, which has then created um, a whole series of, of, of appalling human rights abuses uh, and um, and major sort of death and injury and, and harm to, to millions of people. Um, and 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 one of the key ways for me of doing this is is by deconstructing and and dissecting the language that we use and showing how. It creates a particular type of knowledge, which then creates a particular set of practices, which then get materialized in institutions um, and become ways of, of doing counterterrorism. Um, and, you know, you know, that was kind of like a, a really strong ethical imperative, but combined with the kind of critical tools that, um, that Zulaika and Douglas uh, had provided in in, in um, terror and taboo. I mean that 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 helped to to, to generate the the sort of project. Yeah, and so that was your um, influences that uh, led you towards uh, critical terrorism studies. For those listeners who aren't aware of what critical terrorism studies is, why would you describe it? And what are uh, you know what are the aims of of critical terrorism uh, researchers? Well, um, critical terrorism studies is, um, I, I, well, I see it as quite a broad approach, but it's, it's, an, it's approach, an approach to the research um, about terrorism and counterterrorism that um, doesn't take for granted terrorism as a, as a real thing. It, it, it understands terrorism as a kind of socially constructed um, label and category that gets used. Um, but also it, it kind of it's set up in opposition to, I suppose, or in critique of what we saw, particularly at the time, as a kind of orthodox approach to, to terrorism studies, 
which assumed that terrorism was this um, objective kind of political violence out there that could be measured and counted, um, and that it was the job of the, the terrorism researcher to try and uh, help governments in particular um, uh, deal with this, this threat to society and this, this kind of scourge on, on particularly Western uh, countries. And so, so in a way, it's a kind of an attitude or an approach to questioning dominant academic and cultural and political understandings of what terrorism is and how best to understand it. Um, and it's got a number of different strands. So, so, for example, some critical terrorism studies scholars are concerned that the way in which terrorism has been constructed is as something that non-state actors do. Um, and it's solely a kind of political violence that, that um, uh, non-state groups and individuals get involved in. And they've said, well, actually, you know, even if we use the, the kind of socially agreed definition of terrorism, we have to admit that actually states probably engage in a lot more terrorism than non-state actors do. So we need to bring the state back into the study of, of, of terrorism. I mean, other people are interested in the way in which counterterrorism programs such as de-radicalization um, and counter-radicalization has focused or combined with Islamophobia and focus solely uh, on um, Muslims uh, and the way in which that is kind of constructing them as a as a suspect group in society uh, and trying to shape their um, their citizenship and their subjectivity in particular ways. Uh, so there's a whole series of strands, and 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 I've, I think that most of it um, uh, takes a skeptical view towards um, our our understanding of terrorism and the way in which we approach it uh, as scholars and as society. Um, and then there's probably other strands of it that are much more uh, deeply connected with critical theory and, you know, um, critical security studies, for example. So some of us in the early stages of trying to think about what critical terrorism studies was drew heavily on, on the Welsh School critical security studies uh, ideas and, and put um, things like emancipation at the center. And, you know, today we're arguing, um, you know, me and, and some of my uh, former PhD students who are now publishing are arguing that emancipation ought to be at the, at the center of counterterrorism. Uh, and that forces us to rethink how we're responding to terrorism. And this is like... This final point that you're raising about uh, the role of emancipation in counterterrorism, this is this is something that some outside of critical terrorism studies might be saying. Well, what are the critical terrorism scholars' suggestions in relation to counterterrorism? And this is this is one of the key suggestions that's there at the moment. What else? What other approaches? Because I know when we were talking the last time, you were you were talking about this, the the role that critical terrorism scholars are taking on to to bring forward counterterrorism suggestions. So what role would emancipation play and what other um, uh, suggestions do critical terrorism scholars have in relation to counterterrorism? Well, I mean, interesting you should, um, you should ask that because just, just today I finished um, uh, reading a manuscript by one of my former PhD students, uh, Dr. Son Sondre Lindahl uh, from Norway, who's 
who's about to publish a book called A Critical Theory of Counterterrorism. Uh, in, in the Routledge uh, Critical Terrorism Studies book series that I edit, um, where he, he makes ex this exact point that, you know, up until now, in many ways, um, critical terrorism studies scholars have critiqued the war on terror, critiqued uh, many governments' uh, forms of counterterrorism, pointing out, you know, all the negative things that they do um, and the impacts that they're having. But, but few have suggested... Uh, an alternative way of approaching uh, counterterrorism. Well, you know, Sondre has has done this, and I think his book is going to uh, uh, have a big impact uh, when it comes out later this year, because he argues that, you know, we can uh, construct, if you like, um, a counterterrorism model um, with, you know, a series of assumptions, um, with a series of priorities, uh, with a set of short, uh, medium, and long-term strat practical strategies, and then with a, a series of evaluation exercises that we can use to test whether the, the counterterrorism model, you know, upholds um, sort of emancipatory um, uh, ideals. And, and then he sort of tests that model by looking at uh, the Norwegian uh, response to the Breivik attacks, for example, but also more broadly over Norway's history, and and he suggests that Norway, while you know far from um, fully complying with a kind of ideal uh, critical terrorism studies counterterrorism model, comes relatively close uh, in quite a few areas. And so we could take a lot of um, a lot of advice on how to respond to terrorism um, from the way in which Norway has has responded. You know things like um, uh, making sure that we uphold human rights standards and the rule of law, uh, not making exceptions um, uh, and dehumanizing and, and um, mistreating terrorist suspects, um, not responding to terrorism with mass counter-violence because that um, just creates a cycle of violence. So relying on, um, uh, on you know, things like dialogue, um, things like um, social reform, uh, things like uh, deeper investigation into the causes of terrorism and being willing to acknowledge, uh, you know, uh, the, re the real reasons why uh, terrorists attack particular societies uh, in terms of the grievances and the political conflicts that they're sort of contesting. Uh, things like disarmament um, and demilitarizing so that terrorists, for example, can't get hold of automatic weapons. Uh, to use in their attacks. I mean, there's a whole, you know, an, almost an infinite number of, of things that, that can be done that are kind of opposite, if you like, to the dominant way in which particularly Western countries, the US, the UK, uh, and elsewhere have, have responded to terrorism using primarily counter-force and counter-violence uh, and highly coercive things and things which um, really violate people's rights and privacy and so on, and, and which, you know, to be honest, if we do a proper accounting of the war on terror so far, have been completely ineffectual uh, and have, in fact, made everything worse. I mean, far more people have been killed by counterterrorism than by terrorism since 9-11. Um, and so many people have been injured and, and harmed and displaced, and, and so many norms 
and uh, and laws and um, established legal principles have been violated. Um, and all for what? You know, we you know the period of the war on terror has actually seen um, increased fatalities by terrorists, not decreased. Uh, so clearly, it's not working, and we need a new model. Yeah, and this I'll be fascinated to read this book. When do you expect that it will be out? Um, I expect late this year, so okay. maybe um, September, October. No, it, it sounds like it's going to make a, a really worthwhile contribution um, to our discussions on on counterterrorism. Getting back to your own research now, you're obviously, as, as you have said already, you uh, you focus a lot on the discourse around around uh, terrorism and counterterrorism. And one of the pieces that you said that influenced you is the work of David Campbell, his specifically his ninety eight piece, Writing Security: United States Foreign Policy and the Politics of Identity. What was it that uh, that you really got from this this piece, and what was it saying? Well, I mean, David's um, uh, brilliant book really connected with, um, uh, you know, Joe Saber's um, earlier work in the sense that um, I could see, and David demonstrated this in his book really uh, powerfully, that the discourse around terrorism, in a sense, wasn't that new, but it had many of the same features as earlier discourses, um, uh, you know, around uh red scares and um, brown scares and and sort of moral panics and 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 political uh, periods of, of of great fear and danger that were articulated by politicians uh, in previous years and then and then the important thing is that he he demonstrated the way in which the articulation of these kinds of of um, threats was actually critical to the construction of, of national identity and to the con- and to the sort of construction of foreign policy that that um, that modern states have, you know, modern states need to have a kind of external um, threat in order to unify uh, and in order to give coherence to the national uh, foreign policy establishment uh, and its ideas. And he kind of showed that. Um, you know, throughout his, throughout the history of, of, of a nation, and he focused particularly on the United States, um, there's always this kind of foreign enemy, uh, foreign threat that has to be countered, which helps to construct um, the sense of self and the sense of, of who we are and what our values are. And, um, and I could see, even though that book was written pre-9-11, that terrorism uh, was going to be that next threat. Um, that it would follow the, the, you know, the Soviet Union and the communists. Um, and, and it's turned out to be the case, you know. It's turned out that um, the way in which you construct your security architecture, uh, your policing, your foreign policy, your aid policies overseas, um, your intelligence policies overseas, is, is all sort of constructed through the prism or around the, the idea of, of the key enemy that you've um, identified, and it was uh, communist in the past, and now it's terrorists. Mm-hmm. Um, and the terrorist threat has become the kind of organizing principle of, of government. And it, and it has so many negative uh, consequences, and it's so out of proportion to the actual threat that we face. Um, but it helps to explain why, why we've blown the terrorism threat up into this huge thing 
um, when in reality it's actually, you know, statistically speaking and, you know, by any sort of objective um, kind of assessment, a, a relatively minor threat um, to international security. So that, I mean, that was really influential then because that kind of helped to help me understand the broader social context in which um, the terrorism discourse has evolved. Yeah, and you can see this influence throughout each of the three pieces that you've selected of your own research as well. I'm, I'm specifically thinking when you're talking about uh, how we're, the creation of this enemy, that your piece, Constructing Enemies, uh, Islamic Terrorism in Political and Academic Discourse. But we'll get on to that in a sec, because I want to touch on the last piece that you, you've said that's influenced you, and it's the most recent of the three pieces. Uh, it's by Lisa Stampnitsky, and it's Disciplining Terror, How Experts Invented Terrorism. Um, what what's this this piece about? Um, it's quite self-explanatory in the title, but what what did you really gain from it? Well, to me, what what was absolutely fascinating about this, um, and what I didn't realize until I read it, was kind of how deliberately constructed the the kind of academic discipline of terrorism studies was. Um, you know, in 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 most cases, you think that. Um, you know, disciplines evolve out of, um, you know, somebody becoming curious about a, a real-world uh, problem or issue or phenomenon, um, and things grow up around that, um, and it kind of evolves naturally. But what was interesting about her work um, was to show that, in fact, we had a, we had a field of, of um, insurgency studies, you know, studies on, on political... Um, violence at the sub-state level, um, organized political violence at the sub-state level that, you know, we would call insurgency or civil wars and so on. Um, and that was, you know, quite established. But then there was a deliberate attempt, if you like, to, um, to break away from that and to separate out what was called terrorism uh, and to give it a kind of um, uniqueness uh, or idiosyncrasy that would that would delineate it from normal insurgency or regular insurgency um, and that process of, of constructing terrorism as a kind of you know nihilistic um, irrational uh, and deeply immoral kind of violence uh, was really fascinating and and the fact that it was done kind of in conjunction with uh, people from the State Department in the U.S. Uh, and the, the the kind of counterinsurgency uh, discipline uh, and field there um, was also fascinating because I mean there's a lot of other research which shows that up until the early 1970s um, the U.S. State Department and the Pentagon and 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 U.S. government officials were perfectly happy to say yeah. Terrorism is is just one strategy of, of of armed struggle, and we're happy to do it sometimes, and we're happy to support it sometimes, um, and it can be a useful tactic, and you can use it both um, for insurgency and for counterinsurgency. But then after after the 1970s, um, the the terrorism idea or the terrorism tactic becomes imbued with this moral quality. It becomes a kind of a violence that's 
inherently evil, that's inherently unjustifiable. And so it becomes a kind of taboo and uh, something that you could never, never claim. Um, and so and so that's where, in a way, the beginnings of of um, the current discourse of terrorism, uh, which we know in the war on terror is uh, committed by evildoers and is a particular kind of modern evil, uh, that's where it, it kind of comes from. Now, you know, that raises all kinds of really uh, interesting issues. I mean, how do you study evil? Um, if it is an evil kind of, of, um, of phenomenon of, of violence, um, you know, by what measures do we study it and uh, how can we objectively gather data on it? Uh, is there an evil scale um, from very evil to less evil? I mean, the way in which that moral dimension of terrorism interacts with the academic study uh, and the, the, the kind of pragmatic ways of dealing with it uh, becomes really, really interesting. I mean, at the same time, you know, it's important to recognize that although Lisa did that important work uh, there, we still haven't um, got all the kind of critical discourse analysis of, of the terrorism uh, discourse as it grew up in those earlier years. And I know that... Um, uh, people like Remy Brulin are, are doing terrific work on kind of looking at the, the way in which terrorism was uh, spoken about and discussed uh, uh, in the UN um, and in um, US um, Senate hearings and um, congressional debates and so on, uh, you know, in those, in those sort of early decades. And, and what he's finding is a whole series of really interesting Kind of contradictions um, and inconsistencies in the discourse, um, which you know, as he publishes them, I think will be really, you know, um, important for our understanding of of how it is that we got to the present, uh, and how it is we got to the place we are currently, where we've constructed terrorism in a particular way and constructed the necessary responses in a particular way. Yeah, and you're you're talking there about how. Uh, there was a differentiation between uh, terrorism and insurgency and that terrorism was being differentiated out and saying this was done by, uh, in inverted commas, evil people. Do you think there was a similar differentiation in a post 9-11 within uh, the research on terrorism saying the terrorism post 9-11 is even more evil than the terrorism pre 9-11 as well? Oh, I, th I think you're absolutely right. And I, I mean, one of the fascinating things about um, uh, the impact of 9-11 was that it it kind of solidified a, a sub-narrative within the broader terrorism discourse between uh, so-called old terrorism and new terrorism. So this idea began to emerge in the, in the, in the late 90s that there was a kind of new terrorism that was even worse than the old terrorism because it was religiously based. They, you know, they were fin the people who were doing it were kind of fanatics uh, who were really irrational, um, super irrational, and who were super bloodthirsty. They just they simply wanted to kill for the sake of killing rather than for the sake of um, of political communication uh, or for or for being heard or, or for getting their demands met. Um, 
And they were willing to use weapons of mass destruction. And then when 9-11 happened, this seemed to embody this kind of idea of new terrorism. Uh, and what was what's fascinating is that at that, you know, in those particular times and right, even right up to today, a kind of nostalgia developed uh, around the fact that, you know, the new terrorists today, Al-Qaeda and ISIS and, and, and so-called jihadists, uh, were nothing like the good terrorists of the of the past, the IRA and ETA and and so on, who seemed to be reasonable political actors that we could we could um, we could talk to. I mean, of course, this was a complete rewriting of history because back in the day, uh, the discourse around actors like the IRA was that they were irrational, bloodthirsty terrorists, and there was no talking to them. Um, they were the kind of epitome of evil. But now, of course, um, we've got a new evil, which is even greater than the evil of the past. And we see this 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 um, tendency. I mean, it's happened with Al-Qaeda and ISIS, for example. There's a tendency to always say that the next group uh, is is worse than anything we've seen before, is, is more irrational, is more bloodthirsty, is more horrible. Uh, uh, requires even more resources for us to counter, and so on. And in a way, that's a that's a kind of internal dynamic to the discourse. It's a kind of tendency within the discourse, um, because I suppose you know after a while, it, the novelty wears off, and and the idea that you can keep up this intense uh, sort of fear and and hatred for the for the latest kind of terrorism um, wears off, and so you need a new threat. Yeah, and do you you deal with this discourse then, and the manifestations of this discourse in your uh, in the first of your own pieces that we're going to focus on. It's writing on the war and on terrorism. What were you aiming to uh, achieve with this uh, with this piece, and what were you what were the key messages coming out from it? Well, interestingly, that book um, was kind of accidental uh, in the sense that I was writing another book at the time about. Um, the causes of, of uh, civil wars or interstate conflict. And I was trying to develop a model which argued that um, one of the key ways in which we could explain um, civil wars was through the rise of particular kinds of discourses. Because I argued that, you know, there were a great many countries around the world which had all the structural conditions that are often correlated with, um, with uh, civil wars, you know, poverty, uh, injustice, um, deep social divisions, um, corrupt governments, uh, military domination, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But only a few countries actually develop into a civil war. And I, I said the missing link there was uh, kind of discourses that grew up um, around the enemy other, around the, the nature of the threat that was being faced and around the need um, to fight to protect um, whatever it is that you that you want to protect, and and so as a kind of case study of that, I started looking at the language around terrorism um, and the kind of construction of the war on terror to see whether you know this was actually the case. And then, then the more I got into it, the more I realized, um, yes, this this perfectly illustrates um, uh, the process by which. You construct a threat, you construct an evil, inhuman enemy, uh, you deconstruct norms of, um, of uh, living together and working together and say, no, 
you know, we're now allowed to kill these people because they, they pose such a threat to us. Um, and then it has all these consequences and it enables, enables you to commit violence against the other. Um, and so I, I, you know, I did all that research and thought, oh, well, I better um, um, publish that, you know, first before I finish my other book, which incidentally, I, I, I never have finished that other book, but uh, maybe one day I, I will. But, you know, so the, the idea there was to, to kind of test and see whether um, a, a powerful discourse, particularly one uh, put forward by, by leaders, can motivate society and bring about the consensus necessary uh, to invest a whole heap of resources uh, and lives in the, in the pursuit of a war. Uh, and so that book kind of um, shows how that happened and shows the kind of structure of the war on terror discourse. Um, you know, it's key narratives, it's key discursive processes, uh, and then the key consequences that kind of came out of that. Yeah, and within the book you put forward uh, the belief that by defining it as a, by putting it forward as a war narrative, that this this was put in place to prevent any interpretation that impl impl implicated uh, American foreign policy for any responsibility of of what was uh, of what was taking taking place um, and what uh, terrorist actors did. Do you, uh, has has this war narrative continued to play this role? Do you feel? Well, I, th I think it totally has. Um, I mean, the war, the war narrative, um, you know, the, the reason why it was chosen can, has a lo lot of explanations. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things that feed into that. I mean, the first, of course, is that um, that was a ready-made kind of narrative template that came from Ronald Reagan's first war on terrorism. Most people don't realize that the current war on terrorism was not the first war on terrorism. Reagan's war on terrorism was. And even... Clinton used the phrase war on terrorism once or twice. So maybe there was a second war on terrorism and this is the third. The point is, and this follows, you know, David Campbell's analysis, there was a kind of ready-made discursive template within the U.S. foreign policy establishment and the political uh, elite in that country that, you know, this is how you deal with things. They, they, have, they, they have a war on drugs as well. Um, which, which came a bit earlier, and that was also part of the discursive template. And in that way, it, it's kind of reflexive. It's, it's kind of, you know, when something like that happens, that's the first thing that you, that you reflexively uh, grab onto. Uh, there wasn't a lot of reflection. There wasn't any thought about, well, what are the consequences of declaring a war on, on terrorism? What's going to happen with that? What could happen? And um, would that be a good thing or should we actually treat it as a crime, you know, as a human rights issue, um, as, a, as, a, as a kind of investigative issue for, for domestic um, law enforcement and international law enforcement? Would that have been a better way? Um, there wasn't any reflection. Instead, they, they grabbed on that. But the other thing is that America is a highly militarized society. Uh, you know, when you when you have a hammer, that's what that's what you're going to use. Um, so there's all kinds of material interests and, and institutional interests involved uh, driving that forward as well. Um, you know, there's there's culture, there, you know, the cultural um, messaging that that most Americans get every single day in all their movies and television is that, you know, when there's a crime uh, or some kind of threat 
you respond to it with overwhelming force and eventually the hero will win and you will crush and defeat and destroy your enemies and then everything will be cool. Um, you know, so there's so many elements coming in there. But you're right, one of the key functions of that whole process is to frame terrorism as this kind of um, external, evil, um, irrational attack, um, which is unprovoked. Uh, and one of the key sort of pieces, if you like, of the, of the dominant discourse of terrorism is that it's an unprovoked uh, kind of violence. We don't know why they do it. We, you know, we can't figure it out. The only reason must be that they're evil, that they have this evil, crazy ideology and it makes them hate everyone uh, and want to kill them. And, and there's a deliberate kind of effort there uh, to avoid trying to work out how terrorism might be actually a response to uh, foreign policy, to our actions overseas, to the killings that we're involved in, to the violations of human rights that we're involved in, um, and to the kind of structures that we've established in the global and international system. All the military bases, the domination and intervention in the Middle East, you know, um, the aid to, to different dictators, you know, a thousand things that, that our governments do all around the world that might actually be provocative to other people. And in this, you're, you're talking about uh, depict the language uh, depicting uh, the terrorists as evil, as savages, as animals. This, this is the type of language that you would have talked about and you talked about earlier in the podcast being the origins of the prisoner abuse uh, when we talk, talk of Abu Ghraib and elsewhere as well. And when we're talking about these terrorists, this isn't terrorists in general that we're talking about. We're talking really about the construction of uh, inverted commas Islamic terrorism and this is brings us on to your next piece which is constructing enemies Islamic terrorism and political and academic discourse where you focus in on that uh, that that new enemy and um, or this this terrorist enemy what was what differentiated this piece uh, from the the larger piece writing on the war on terror and what were your what were the key the key messages coming from this? Well, I, th I think you've you've articulated it very well there. Um, the the point about this was the realization that in actual fact we weren't talking, in a sense, we weren't talking about terrorism in general. We weren't talking about um, Basque terrorism or Northern Irish terrorism. Uh, we weren't talking about right wing terrorism, uh, white power terrorism. Uh, you know, uh, BNP-linked terrorism. We weren't talking about um, state terrorism. We were, we were talking about so-called Islamic terrorism, and uh, and we were making that a kind of a stand-in for all forms of terrorism, um, and and saying that that you know that that that's what we mean. What we mean by terrorism is when Muslim people uh, use political violence. Uh, and when Muslim people use political violence, this reflects on all other Muslim people. Uh, and what, what's interesting is that it kind of, again, this, this doesn't come out of nowhere. This, this is not a, a quick invention, but uh, it actually taps into 
a long history of Orientalism and a long history of um, sort of animosity and fear and um, titillation uh, about the, the Middle East, about Muslims. It, it taps into sort of deeper structures of, of, of racism uh, and prejudice. Um, and in many ways, it's, this, is, this is, has grown and, and become e even more powerful than, than ever before. Uh, and again, it's had a lot of material impacts on um, the way in which Muslims are treated and, and the, the abuses that they've uh, had to face and the prejudice that they uh, continually face and the kind of um, citizenship that they're allowed to have, particularly in, in Western countries. So this was about going a little bit deeper into one of the key aspects of the of the broader terrorism discourse to try and show that it's kind of coalesced around an idea of, of, of Muslims. But then also, I mean, the key point of that article was to deconstruct that um, that narrative and to show, uh, you know, how um, contradictory and unreliable it is and how it has all these deeply negative um, uh, um, consequences. I mean, the follow-up article to that is, um, is uh, what's so religious about religious terrorism, which kind of deconstructs the broader um, category of religious terrorism and suggests that that is, is actually not very helpful either. Mm. Um, within, this, within this piece, uh, Constructing Enemies, you examine over 300 political and academic texts. What, how did you select which ones to examine? Um, what was it? Um, who was it presenting these texts? Who was it the authoring these texts that you were looking at? Well, I mean, one of the one of the ways I did it was first of all just to do searches for um, articles within the terrorism journals, the the, the two main terrorism journals, um, uh, with the word Islamic terrorism or Islamist terrorism or something like that, uh, to get a selection of articles. Uh, I, I then looked at um, you know sort of uh, a whole list of the list of listings of publications um, from major book publishers um, after 9-11 um, that had to do with religious terrorism or Islamic terrorism and so on. Um, I looked at um, some of the key, you know, some of the key texts that uh, terrorism studies seems to cite most often, um, you know, um, books that, uh, that everyone has on their, their reading lists for courses. Um, and then I went back and looked uh, also at, um, you know, the main speeches um, from, from the war on terror. Um, and, I, you know, looking at all that, I started to see these, these common threads, these common narratives. Uh, and if you do that, you can then start to, uh, you know, construct or see how key narrative structures emerge across those different um, uh, domains of, of sort of discursive production. Uh, and you can see the links between them or the, the reflections between them. Um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty standard um, critical discourse mm -hmm. analysis uh, approach. Um, and after a while, you know, every time you add a new, you look at a new article or a new speech or a new text, and you realize actually it's just the same core narratives that you've already found in, in all the other texts, then you don't need to keep going. Um, but you've, you've then got a sort of broad idea of, um, 
of what is this discourse trying, you know, saying, and, and what are its key uh, constructions and narratives and sub-narratives and concepts, and then, you know, following through, you you try and um, uh, trace the way in which these uh, discourses then are reflected in, in in practice and in institutions. And when we're looking at the political uh, text, specifically in political speeches, um. Do you notice, did you notice a difference between, say, when George Bush was president in the United States and when Barack Obama took over? Because there was this this great hope that there would be a change in the narrative there. Did you see that reflected? Uh, interestingly, I, I have published um, a couple of, of, of pieces that um, have, have looked at, um, you know, book chapters that have looked at... Um, Obama in comparison to um, to Bush, for example, and my my assessment there is that while there were while there were minor uh, changes to the discourse, you know, uh, Obama, for example, decided or sent out a memo, whatever it was, to say we're not going to use the term war on war on terror anymore. Uh, we're going to use the term war against Islamic extremism or war against Al Qaeda. Um, while there were some small changes to the discourse, the, the broader structure of it has remained essentially the same. Um, I mean, what you've got to realize is that when, when presidents speak, they speak within a particular context. Um, and the context that, that Obama was speaking in was quite different to the context that Bush was speaking in. Obama was speaking in a context where you'd had eight years uh, or more of the war on terror, where you'd had a lot of losses, uh, in Iraq, where, where you'd had continuing terrorist attacks. Um, and so what he's got to try and do is, is keep selling the war on terror narrative uh, to a public that perhaps might be a little bit war-weary um, and that might be wondering about all these continued sacrifices and for what. So the key point is that he didn't come out and say, look, the war on terror is over. Uh, we're actually not going to think of this as a war anymore, we're, and we're going to stop using military force. We're going to, you know, um, approach this from a different perspective, from from a justice perspective, and from a social reform perspective. And we're going to start trying to find out what they really want and whether or not we can respond. I mean, he, you know, he he increased the number of drone strikes. You know, he he changed the tactics to use. Um, more special forces and, and targeted raids and so on. But the, the basic structure of the war on terror continued and certainly the spending continued. Uh, and then we know that, um, you know, surveillance and um, mass surveillance and, and all that sort of thing continued and was expanded as well. So, you know, and I think there's a good reason for this. And that's because in a way um, the discourse had become embedded uh, into American politics and society. It was, you know, there were this, these massive institutions, the Department of Homeland Security, the, you know, all the counterterrorism offices in the in the FBI, all the, the 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 restructuring of the NSA to make counterterrorism a priority. You know, all the foreign deployments. I mean, that is a juggernaut. You can't just turn that around uh, quickly. Um, I mean, in many ways, this is getting to the scale of the war of the Cold War, 
and it's very difficult just to end that or even to change its course that that um, significantly. So in a way, it's not surprising um, because of all those embedded interests and, and embedded institutions. Yeah, and when we're talking about these institutions and when we're talking about the approaches that they're taking, um, you you say in your final piece that you believe that not only in academia but among practitioners as well that there's an epistemological crisis within counterterrorism and this is the final piece that we're uh, going to be discussing on today's episode what is it that you mean by an epistemological crisis well this goes back to 9-11 and it's one of the fascinating and interesting um, aspects in terms of discourse uh, of what happened after 9-11. Um, in many ways, it relates as well to, to the point I made before about how there's been a kind of deliberate attempt or a determined attempt to avoid trying to find out what the real causes of terrorism are, you know, why uh, terrorists would um, actually uh, engage in these kinds of activities against us. Uh, and so, what, and and it also relates to this um, idea of new terrorism and old terrorism. You know, the old terrorism being um, rational political actors who we can now understand versus the new irrational actors. Um, and it's what Lisa Stampnitsky refers to as uh, as the politics of anti-knowledge. The idea that we there are things we we know, but we don't really want to know them. And and perhaps one of the most um, famous phrases, I think, um, and I, I can't remember the exact um, quotation, but I think it comes from Bruce Hoffman, where he said, you know, 9-11 swept away everything that we knew about terrorism. Uh, and and that, that's a, that was a really prescient saying, because in a sense, um, that's exactly what the Bush administration deliberately did. It, it, it literally came out and said, we don't know anything about terrorism. We, we don't know who terrorists are and where they're going to attack and what weapons they're going to use um, and when this might happen. All we know is that we're going to keep being attacked and we have to be ready. And and by saying that, they kind of wiped out or, or put to one side all the knowledge that had been developed previously in counterinsurgency studies and in civil war studies and studies of political violence. And indeed, even in, in the sort of uh, field of terrorism study, the small field of terrorism studies that had been going since the 70s. Uh, and they said, actually, we don't know anything. So, we, you know, there's a crisis of knowledge and epistemology refers to, to how we know what we know and, and, and questions around knowledge. So it's an epistemological crisis in the sense that there's a crisis of we don't know anything about terrorists. Uh, you know, they could do anything at any time to anyone, anywhere. Uh, and 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 we are going to be we, we're going to hang on to that in a determined fashion. And if anyone comes along and says, actually, you know, I've been studying terrorism for a long time and I can tell you that they don't do these sorts of things, but these are the sorts of things that they're likely to do. And this is likely how many of them there are. And they, so they would say, well, you, you can't know that um, you could be wrong. Um, and, and this is combined with a kind of extreme precautionary attitude. So this is this is um, reflected in Dick Cheney's idea of the 1% principle, which is, he, he again, he articulated this idea that if there's even a 1% chance that a terrorist might do something, we have to, we have to act as if that is 
um, kind of certain and and try and have a response to it just in case it happens. So you combine those two things, this, this, desi- this need to uh, take precautionary measures against any possible terrorist attack and the idea that actually we no longer know anything about terrorism, it produces this crisis. And this is, this is what we can see, and it, it's fascinating to me, um, and it kind of grew out of, um, you know, an experience that um, a colleague of mine um, uh, had where he got stopped at the airport and he was carrying terrorism books that he was going to read and they had to re-X-ray them and, and then get the police involved and then eventually tell him that he was allowed to travel with, um, with these books. And I thought that was, that was just so bizarre. But when you start to analyze it through the idea of the epistemological crisis of terrorism, you realize it's not bizarre at all. It's actually the logical outcome. If you don't know, or if you hold on to this idea that you don't know what terrorists might do, then your imagination runs wild. And, and so you, you imagine all these potential scenarios and you then have to take all these precautions. And I think this is the era we're living in now where where the authorities are so afraid of terrorism, everybody's afraid of it, and everyone claims to know nothing about it. So then we just have to use our imagination uh, and take whatever absurd, crazy, bizarre responses that we think we might need. Yeah, and you you refer in the piece to a to a quote from Robert Mueller before he was special counsel when he was an FBI director, saying he was concerned about what we are not seeing. So it wasn't a concern of okay, what do we know? It's what do we not know? It's I think that quote really, really got to the heart of this argument that you're putting that you're putting forward. Um, you also talk that it, there was a consequent uh, legitimization and institutionalization of imagination and fantasy. What do you mean by this this fantasy? Um, how did that manifest then? I know we've touched on some of it here, but that's one of the things that might stand out to people. Uh, and uh, your the example that you use of of Hollywood executives and Hollywood directors was was one I found fascinating. Yeah, well, I and mean, this is one of the interesting things. Um, um, and there's other people who've written about this uh, in more detail. But there was a meeting, uh, I think, in October. 2001 between uh, you know members of the Bush administration and the FBI and the Pentagon and so on and uh, key figures in Hollywood to try and say well you know you guys in Hollywood keep imagining in your movies uh, what terrorists might do and we now think that that's that's um, these are real possibilities that maybe that's where terrorists are getting their ideas and maybe you know if you can put yourself in you know, fantasize about being a terrorist and what you would do uh, in your movies, we, then we can use this as a way of trying to respond to terrorism. And, and I mean, the whole point of this is that um, it's it's not rooted in research. It's not rooted in actually talking to, to terrorists or to militants. It's not rooted in any uh, sort of empirical basis, but it's it's a reliance on imagination. Uh, and imagination uh, can then become fantasy. And I mean, you know, there are, in that piece, I, I, I cite a few examples of how people, you know, made serious suggestions, for example, that um, terrorists might use hand gliders to 
to fly across the city and drop bombs on people. And so any hand glider operators needed to have counterterrorism measures in place uh, to ensure that that wouldn't happen. Well, I mean, that is pure fantasy, isn't it? I mean, that's someone sitting down fantasizing, thinking, you know, if I was a terrorist, what would I do? Uh, I, you know, maybe I could hire a hand glider and, and drop bombs on people. I mean, there's, and and the point is that this this kind of fantasizing um, um, is a direct consequence of the epistemological crisis, and then it becomes legitimized. I mean, one of the interesting things is at the end of the um, of the 9/11 Commission is that you know it stated that one of the reasons for the failures to stop it was a lack of imagination, uh, and that um, that um, that counterterrorism officials ought to uh, start using their imagination. I mean, what that really should have said was, you know, there was a lack of understanding of the academic research and there was a lack of engagement with um, militant groups and, and so on to find out, you know, w w what they're thinking and, and why they do what they do and and um, and how we might respond in a way that's going to prevent uh, terrorism in the future. It's 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 really interesting um, as a discourse to study, but it is also kind of disturbing because um, you know uh, there are so many examples of people who've been harmed through that kind of fantasy thinking, that kind of counter-terrorist imagination, um, and and even more people who've been you know um, discomforted and 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 had their lives disrupted in some way. I think the last time I spoke to you, you, you summed it up nicely in saying that it's it's led to a focus not uh, it's led to a focus on the possible, not the probable. And I thought that would, that really summed summed it up there. It wasn't looking at what what will probably happen, but all eventualities, all possibilities. There, it's um, no, it's really it really uh, gets you thinking that piece. I think, and I think in our last conversation, you spoke as well about the. Um, uh, the liquids ban as well and how if this was really something that was that was so dangerous and such a threat to have something over 100 milliliters of liquid why are they just throwing it into buckets beside the security checks as well if they're piling these up if they're if they're really that dangerous it's uh, absolutely yeah yeah no i mean it, it, go on sorry this i mean you, you've just given up the, the most obvious and perfect example um, of the kind of absurdity of it uh, and the way it's it um, results in these kind of um, you know perverse um, and yeah really absurd kind of outcomes um, and and also just you know wondering how the designers if you like and the managers of the counterterrorism processes can't see the absurdities and the, the kind of contradictions in their discourse mm -hmm. I mean, as you say, if, if there was a risk that um, liquids really were potential explosives, then you wouldn't put them in a place where, where hundreds of people mill around. Uh, there'd be some kind of chute that took, took them away to a, to a metal bin where if they blew up, it wouldn't hurt anyone. Yeah, yeah it's, it's something that, uh, that we, could, we could talk about uh, well into the night here now. But... Just to draw this to a close, and I suppose it will be referring back to all of your research and and the future of um, of critical terrorism studies as well, but terrorism studies as a whole, with 
with all this thinking about about this area, how do you feel the modern day health is of of terrorism studies in twenty eighteen? Has it improved since those uh, since those earlier times that you were talking about, or do you uh, or what do you feel the problems that it's facing are now? Uh, overall, I, th- I think it really has improved. Um, I think, you know, in some ways, um, there's been a, a pluralization um, of the terrorism studies field. There are there are far more. Obviously, there are far more people um, doing terrorism studies these days. Uh, it's not just critical terrorism studies, but the whole terrorism studies field has become a, a massive um, and very broad-based and very interdisciplinary. Uh, kind of field, um, you know. There's, you know, interesting uh, research coming in from from literature and and literary studies, you know, law, sociology, history, um, you know, politics. Um, so many different areas, um, and I think that that has really helped to pluralize the field. I still think that there's there's probably particular kind of maybe geographically um, and intellectually conservative places where a traditional kind of terrorism studies is still going on, which is focused primarily around providing, um, you know, uh, advice to policymakers about how to better counter terrorism. And, you know, we can still critique a lot of that research because it refuses to really engage with um, the political reasons and the political grievances of, of, of why terrorists do what they do. Uh, and it still focuses a lot on um, using traditional uh, notions of deterrence and the use of force to try and um, eliminate uh, terrorists and, and deal with the threat that way. Um, but on the whole, I think there's a much um, you know wider set of uh, theoretical approaches to draw from. I mean, one of the things that uh, that terrorism studies never had, um, I think, before critical terrorism studies came along, was a kind of discussion about um, the way in which social theory affects the study of terrorism, and in particular, uh, the rise of constructivism and, and post-structuralism um, and the kind of inter-paradigm debates um, that that never really touched um, uh, terrorism studies, and it was it was incredibly sort of positivist and empiricist, I, I think, in its focus. Um, but that uh, you know we're seeing more and more of, of that now, and we're seeing um, the use of of wider uh, non-positivist sort of methodologies and approaches, which I think is all very very helpful, and I think. In some ways, critical terrorism studies has been a part of that story. It's been part of, of pluralizing uh, the broader field, um, you know, for which I'm very proud. Yeah. Well, Richard, I think that's a that's a lovely way to finish today's podcast. Uh, thank you so much for giving up your time yet again for us here on uh, on Talking Terror. Um, for anyone who wants to read uh, the pieces that were discussed in today's episodes more in depth. Um, you, there are links to each of the pieces, the books and the articles on uel.ac.uk slash TERC. If you go to the Talking Terror section of that website, you'll be able to uh, to find out where you can purchase the books and where you can read the articles as well. Obviously, follow us as always on uh, at 
uh, on at T-E-R-C-U-E-L on Twitter and tweeted us with the hashtag Talking Terror. Until next week, I'll chat you all then. Okay. <laughs>